All right, well, welcome to our first service of 2024. <laughs> this is not quite what we planned on, but it's our very first service. I just have to ask, anyone survive getting, uh, staying healthy, not getting sick all throughout Christmas? If, man, I got to talk to you guys sometime. <laughs> but uh, we had a great start to uh, Christmas. We had a great time, uh, good start to New Year. I have a simple problem with holidays, though. I love Christmas, I just don't know what's next. I love Christmas, there's gifts, there's baby Jesus, there's love, hope, peace, joy, cookies, and then January shows up, and you know, I just spent some time over the last week thinking about, man, how God was faithful to us, and man, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. But there's a problem with having the most wonderful time of the year. Do you know what it is? It's the same problem as having a favorite kid. It means the other ones maybe aren't your favorite. And if December is the most wonderful time of the year, what does that make January, <laughs> right? January has been good so far. We spent New Year's cleaning up uh, Christmas decorations. That was a good time. Uh, I'm not sure if that's safe or not, but it was a good time. And I got to be honest, though, uh, I started the year in a bit of a slump. I showed up at the office a little bit tired a little bit low energy, so much to do, hard to know where to start. Now, I don't know, being done with the most wonderful time of the year, it's, uh, I think it sets you up for a letdown. And I discovered I'm not the only one to go through this. I'm not the only person to have a letdown after the holiday. In fact, uh, I did some research. Some people call this month the season of the post-holiday blues. They blame the weather or finances. Lots of people feel pressure in January, the pressure of having to make a fresh start or from resolutions or, man, it is so hard for kids to go back to school after having so much fun. It's hard to so many, for so many people to go back to being alone after spending so much time with family. What I've learned about this season is that right now, the beginning of January, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. For lots of people, it's the most difficult. And I could list statistics about increases of suicides or divorces or addiction or, and the thing that I can't figure out is whenever I talk to funeral, funeral directors, they'll tell me that January is their busiest time of the year because somehow I'm fascinated by this. People on their deathbeds in December somehow just decide to not die until the new year. Like, just something is powerful about wanting to keep going. But the thing that makes January so sad for so many people, I think, is the disconnect between all of the wonderful, wonderful promises of Christmas and then the thing that happens next. Like, Advent is great. We, we, we're waiting for Jesus to come, and we celebrate that Jesus will change everything, right? We've, we've said that for weeks. And then Jesus comes, and we light the Christ candle, and it's great. But I could tell you what changes since last week. We, we put the candles away. They're over there somewhere. We took down some of the Christmas decorations. And I think for most of us, that's about it. And what's disappointing is that for most people, instead of more joy, more love, more peace, most of us have gone back to the way things were right before Christmas. In fact, there's lots of people in our culture who do nothing with the baby Jesus that we celebrate until next December. 
Some folks uh, go to church and do nothing about Jesus. Today, though, we're going to discover an amazing story in the Bible where the Gospels answer this question, what happens after Christmas? And if you just flip through the Gospels, you find, you know, you could read the story of Christmas. Uh, Jesus makes this big public spectacle with angels and shepherds. They announce things to the whole villages. Uh, wise men come and, you know, they talk about Jesus in palaces. And then for the next couple decades, you find out some private details about Jesus. He goes to Egypt, he comes back, he's dedicated, he begins to find disciples, he goes through the wilderness. What we're going to talk about today, though, is the story of what John calls his first public appearance. Today's story is about what happens after Christmas. Jesus appears to us. We're going to look at the book of John, chapter 2. This is the first big public thing Jesus does after Christmas. And I have to give credit where credit's due. Talking about this story isn't my idea. This is a story told right after Christmas for thousands of years. Yesterday was Epiphany. More traditional groups of Christians would celebrate today the coming of the wise men. And, you know, if, if you were in a perhaps a Roman Catholic church or an Episcopal church, every year during this service, they would celebrate the wise men and part of the epiphany would be reading this story because it is when Jesus' glory first shone in the public. All that to say, what comes after Christmas and the Gospels? Well, the next thing to happen is a story that we tell in the book of John chapter 2. This is what tells us to expect after Christmas. And honestly, you might be in for a shock here. Jesus does that, you know. He rarely is what you'll expect. In fact, sometimes he doesn't do what you plan on at all. His plans tend to be different and better. I'm just going to tell you the story. It's from the book of John, chapter 2. You can follow along. Here's how it starts. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Jesus, they, they have no wine. So let's talk about this. So far, if you read John 1, he's gotten about five disciples, followers, friends. And next thing that happened, there was a wedding, and Jesus apparently filled out his plus five on his wedding invitation, which everyone was thrilled about, of course. And somehow it seems like Mary, Jesus' mother, is involved in the hosting part of this, which is a bad job at the moment because when your job is to make sure everybody has what they need and you're out of what people need, you're in trouble. And there's a couple details you need to know. This is a long time ago. Culture was different back then, far away. Wedding celebrations could last for a whole week. And the financial responsibility, it was more than just writing a check. It was the groom's chance to prove himself. Wedding celebrations were a chance for a young man to announce to society that I am well off enough financially to start my family. It's an announcement to potential clients, to people you'd work with, trade partners. A wedding feast was an announcement saying, I am man enough 
to work in business and start my household and family. Me personally, I think having a week-long wedding is a bad idea. I think couples should, uh, I don't know, save for a down payment on a house or something. But somehow that's how it worked way back then. And the problem with that is if running a good wedding party was proof as a man that you were all set to run a household, failing at that was a disaster. You were, if you failed to put on a wedding feast, you were just saying, hey, I'm irresponsible. You shouldn't trust me to keep my promises, and I'm not man enough to run a business or a home. Please don't hire me for anything. And as crazy as it sounds to us, in history, you could find some examples of like actual lawsuits about wedding feasts. <laughs> like, as funny as it sounds, uh, you'd have in-laws who go, you know, you can't provide for my daughter because you couldn't feed us for a whole week. Why should I trust you to feed my wife for the rest of her life, or my daughter for the rest of her life? Uh, business people saying, hey, I trusted you, and you can't even feed us. I gave you a nice gift. Uh, I'm owed compensation. Like, I'm not even kidding. There were lawsuits, which just tells us how important it was for someone to be able to put on a wedding feast. This is a big deal. We read it really quickly, but there is desperation in Mary's voice. This is a big deal. In the background, Mary is going, Jesus, my son, it's, uh, it's after Christmas, like 30 years after Christmas, and so far, Jesus, nothing has changed. Uh, I have an idea, Mary's thinking. You, you like walking around with your friends. Why don't you walk to a different village and get us some supplies, Mary might be thinking. But Jesus, you've got to solve my problems. I mean, it's been a while since Christmas. The angels were nice. The shepherds were nice. Prophecy's nice. But look, Jesus, we put away the nativity scene already, and I've got real problems, and I just need you to fix it. That's how I imagine Mary thinking this. And Mary, in a way, is all of us. Christmas is lovely, but now it's January and we've got problems. And we're all like Mary going, Jesus, can you fix it? It's not complicated. I can tell you exactly what to do. And instead of Jesus saying, yes, mom, I love you, mom, Jesus responds awkwardly and we have to talk about it. Uh, this is a strange verse. It says, uh, Jesus says to his mom, why? Do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This is weird. Not loving mother, not uh, I love you, mom, but like woman. And it's not offensive per se, but it's formal. Jesus is talking like a cab driver who says, hey, lady. Or maybe in some parts of the country, uh, you use the term ma'am as a I must not know you sort of thing. Jesus goes, Excuse me, ma'am? Uh, he's saying, like, do I know you, right? <laughs> like, this is not a loving son, loving mother thing. And then what he says next is also strange. Why do you involve me in this? In Greek, it's literally what to me and to you. Like, what do we have in common here? Uh, we see, we don't see this phrase a lot in the Bible, but this is what, and this is how demons talk to Jesus. Like, you're God, I'm, I'm not. What do we have in common here? This is awkward. Jesus is, at best saying, not my, stay in your lane, not my monkey, not my circus, right? This is such a weird thing, because Mary is just asking for help. Jesus, I've got a problem here. And instead of Jesus going, of course I'll help you, I love you, he's not even gentle about it. And, and it's hard to imagine 
what Mary would have felt when she heard these words. Or is it? I don't know if it's too hard to imagine because I think we felt this. We felt this every week when we go through the prayer list. I mean, it's been a while since I got a request about running out of wine, but we have a lot of things to pray about. Jesus hears a marriage that's falling apart. Jesus hears a family where the dad needs a new job, or Jesus let's talk about surgery, or cancer, or addiction, or deathbeds, or Jesus, I got some friends who are wandering off into bad spots, or maybe you go to Jesus, not, not with a they on my prayer list have a problem, it's Jesus, I got a problem. Uh, I don't know why I'm so afraid, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I don't know why I'm repeating the same bad habits as I did last year. Jesus, I remember Christmas, that, that was so great, weeks ago, you could snap your fingers and change it, but you haven't. In fact, sometimes we bargain. Jesus, I was so good, I, I don't deserve this. Jesus, if you fix this, I'll start doing this. Or Jesus, I'm your mom, is what, what Mary could have said. And this story teaches us a hard lesson. Jesus isn't bossed around even by his mom. He's not manipulated. He's not guilted. Jesus is king. He's not a genie. And that's a hard lesson for someone like Mary to figure out. And sometimes I wonder if when we go to the Lord in prayer, do we know exactly what Mary feels like? I mean, this is, this is what Jesus says to his mom, and I think he says this to us sometimes. We pray and tell Jesus exactly what to do. And he says, look, I'm God, you're not. Then he says, why not? He says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus is going, I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. In this case, it's a grand redemptive arc. Mary doesn't know what it is. Jesus does. But he says, look, uh, this is not part of my plan right now. You all know exactly how Mary feels. Because you've all, if you've ever prayed, you have heard Jesus going, I appreciate what you want me to do, but that's not part of my plan right now. The question isn't, are we like Mary? Like, we've done this. We've all got prayers, and we all get disappointed when Jesus doesn't jump to obey our every request. The question isn't, does Jesus treat us like this? I mean, we've all felt Jesus do this. We've all felt this disappointment when Jesus in some way says, look, I'm God, you're not, and our problems seem unsolved. None of those are the questions. Here's a question I want to discover. I'm fascinated by this. If we're like Mary, and if Jesus is like Jesus, here's a question. What do you do next? What should you do? In those moments when you bring your concerns to Jesus and he disappoints you because you've got problems and he doesn't seem to help, what do you do next? Now, what Mary does next, what she teaches us, can change your life. And I want you to learn from it because she does something amazing that most people wouldn't think of doing. So verse 5, I'll keep reading the story. Uh, his mother says to his servants, and here's our line, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now think about what it would take for Mary to say this. She could have been angry. 
She could have been disappointed. She could have given up on Jesus. Can I say that? Because that's what most people would do. Instead of that, and assumably she's in charge of staff, instead of being disappointed, instead of going, I know we thought Jesus was going to fix this, but we're going to give up on him for now. She says, we're going to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. He's got a different plan. And you may think whatever he says doesn't make sense. You may not think it helps you with your problems. You, in fact, you may even have a grudge right now against Jesus because you came to him for help and he's not. But Mary says, look, just trust him and do whatever he tells you to do. Now, the narrator says up some details, the next couple of verses. Nearby, there were six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, you need to know about this. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that people got right with God was by ceremonial washings. Uh, there's commands, there's a whole Old Testament thing. And one thing that Jesus is doing sort of at a macro level in the book of John is communicating is how he takes sort of Old Testament practices and upgrades. Now, we'll talk about this some other time, but at this wedding, it's just logistical. We're at a wedding, lots of people are eating, and there's giant jars, and religious or not, people are washing their hands. They didn't have sinks, they didn't have sanitation stations like we do now. What they had was giant jars where everyone would wash their hands. Now, they weren't jars you drink out of. No one drinks this water, but it's water, and you would wash your hands with it. And by now, you know, it's been a while, a couple days of the feast so far, the water is sort of running out of water and it's dirty. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. Then Jesus says, draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, here's the story, and when the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned to wine, he did not realize where it came from, only the servants who had drawn the water. And he called the bridegroom aside. It says everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now there's a bunch of details we could talk about here. Let me just give you my sort of take on what happens next. Here's my take. So you got servants who've been told by Mary to do whatever he says. They, they fill up these giant jars with water. And it's not super clean water. It's to wash your hands with. And again, people had, it was a little strange request because most people washed their hands by then. And then Jesus asked them to do something that sounds crazy. Here's what I think it sounds like. I think Mary, or Jesus is saying, look, get the fancy decanters, not the, not the, buckets to wash hands. Get the fancy thing, the thing that you serve wine to the honored guests with. And then instead of putting wine in it, fill it up with some of that, you know that dirty water people wash their hands with, fill it up with that stuff. And at this point, I imagine servants are like, what? Uh, okay, so this is a fancy thing and we're putting hand washing stuff in it. And then Jesus says, okay, so you filled up your fancy serving thing with a, the hand-washing water. And remember, these aren't glass containers. You're not seeing through these things. And Jesus says, you know what we should try? 
take that water from the hand-washing thing and go find the most important person in the room. You know, the, the boss that everyone is tiptoeing around in, in fear of offending. And I want you to, can you imagine, pour that hand-washing water in his wine glass and let's just see what happens. I mean, that, that's what's happening here. Jesus tells these servants, sort of at the bottom of the totem pole, to do something crazy. This sounds like a prank show. What would you do if you were one of those servants? I gotta be honest, if I wanted to keep my job, I would probably not do what Jesus just told me to do. Because it seems crazy. But the, the, your boss's boss's boss can look at like dirty hand washing water. What's he going to do next? But Mary says, and the words were ringing through their ears, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And the amazing part of this story is they do it. Remember, not a clear picture. I don't think they look at the wine and go, hey, we're going to serve it. They pour what they think is dirty water. And they pour it into another container. Again, not a clear wine glass, more like a mug of some sort. And I imagine these servants (coughs) watching for a reaction. Will the guy spit it out? Will he be mad? Will we get fired right away? Uh, and this is debated, but I, I think this is when the miracle happens. I think when the servants act in faith, do something really risky, and when the master of the banquet lifts the drink to his mouth, instead of discovering dirty water that he just spits out, what he discovers is the best wine served so far. And there's a sort of fascinating detail in the story. The only people who know what just happened was those servants. And then John continues the story. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And, look at this line, his disciples believed in him. And I guess I owe you a caveat. Um, this is thought of as the first big public headlining miracle of Jesus. Uh, not my idea. This is because John says this is the first sign by which he revealed his glory. The thing is, when you read the story, who saw Jesus' glory? This isn't a scenario where everybody saw what Jesus did. Do you know who sees and follows? Do you know who believed? I mean, it says the disciples, but in the story, it's those servants. The people who heard Mary say, do whatever Jesus tells you to do, and they do it, they're the ones that got to see God's glory. And, and I think those are the ones who became his disciples. Those people had every reason to be disappointed or angry with Jesus, because instead of helping them, Jesus told them to just do something crazy. And they discover, as they obeyed the Lord, that God's plan was better than what they imagined. And I think that those servants became disciples because obeying Jesus is the first step in following Jesus. Look, I'll be honest, this is sort of a weird story. This is not what shepherds or wise men or what Mary expected to come after Christmas. But I think that in the unexpected, God has something for you to learn. We're all living after Christmas. What happens after Christmas? Here's what I think happens. You may be like Mary, coming to Jesus with problems to solve. You may very well 
go, Jesus, I got a simple request for you to do. You may have got issues, you may, I don't know, you may want better relationships with your family. You may be one of the many people who are mourning fractured community after the holidays. You may be lonely. You may have very clear health problems or grief or cancer or sickness. The fact is we live in a broken world. And we might be like Mary going, Jesus, not complicated, fix my problem, <laughs> just do this for once. You love me, right? And you may be like Mary and be tempted to be disappointed or upset when Jesus the King doesn't snap his finger and take away your pain points instantly. You may very well be annoyed when instead of Jesus doing what you ask, he just hints to having a better plan and you just can't see it yet, right? You may be living the story of Mary. Christmas was great. Jesus being born should bring, you know, hope, peace, love, all those things. The new year was supposed to be a fresh start, but it doesn't feel like any of that. It doesn't feel like things are better or fresh or like any of those promises are coming true. The question is, what do you do next? What should you do when you've got problems and it doesn't seem like Jesus is doing whatever I want him to do? What do you do? Well, here's your answer. Here's what I want you to hear God telling you through this story. It's this. Even when it feels like Jesus is ignoring you, even if it feels like you're being let down, like God's plan doesn't fit your plan. Here's what you do. Do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> do whatever he tells you to do. That's what Mary tells the servants to do. And what he says may not make sense. It may sound as crazy as living for God's glory instead of you. It may be as senseless as things like confession and repentance and loving our neighbors. How's that going to help? Jesus may be telling you to say, look, God, I was wrong here. It might mean putting yourself out there to get help. If you're not a Christian, maybe what Jesus is telling you to do is to do something as radical as trusting in him to save you, to forgive you, to follow Jesus. Like those first disciples. I, I gotta be honest, I don't know exactly what whatever is. I don't know what Jesus is telling you to do. You have to Read scripture, listen, pray, hear godly advice. But here's what I'm pretty sure about. I am confident that people who bravely do whatever Jesus tells them to do in this story, and you know, in our church we tell a lot of other stories of what happens, you will discover that what Jesus tells you to do might be surprising, but it's better and it's grander than anything you can imagine. And this is the story, the testimony of people who live the rest of their lives in the afterglow of God's goodness, his generosity, and his kindness. And I'm convinced that God calls us to do just that in the season after Christmas. So Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with us. It's 2024. And it's a time when so many of us are exhausted and lonely and 
is tough for so many. And I pray maybe more than anything else that as our lives are scattered and disruptive, could you become the center of our existence? Can you center our actions, our thoughts, our deeds? Can you help us to turn our eyes in your direction in a way that gives us courage to do whatever you have us to do? Can you tell us what that is? Can you help us to have the bravery to do it? And can you bless us by showing us your glory? We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.